Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. All right, Mark chapter 1, verse 7. We're going to read together, and then we'll pray and jump into it. Mark chapter 1, verse 7. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted or tested by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Father, we're hungry and thirsty for your voice today. I have notes on paper, um, and Lord, I I believe that you speak in that way. But God, I I just ask you that in these next moments, Lord, that you would speak prophetically, that you would minister to our hearts. Father, whether that's through how people hear the word or through how it's spoken, God, I pray that you would transform us by your glory, shape us and mold us and make us into the people you're calling us to be. God, we are hungry and thirsty, and Lord, we're starving for your word, and it's here. So Spirit, would you breathe on it? Lord, I thank you uh, that you make it fresh bread every time. We step into your word, and you open our hearts and our minds, and you change us. And so, God, I pray that you do that today, God, and that you would, you would minister authoritatively even in my weakness and in my lack, that you would show up in strength. And we give you glory for that. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, hey, several of you today, I am fairly sure that you've had prophetic words for one another or words of knowledge or you feel like the Lord is speaking things to you during worship. Can I encourage you to either write that down and give it to them or... Like, make an opportunity where you actually share those things. They're dynamic when the Lord speaks something for someone else to give them that. What a gift uh, on a Sunday morning, right? You good? Okay. Uh, So today we're going to begin with the words of John, who is reflecting on what his life is about. And two weeks ago we were talking about John being this voice in the wilderness who came to prepare the way, to call people to repentance. Um, And today I just want to point out two things that John says, and then we're going to continue on into this passage, into verses um, 8 and 9. But John has this incredibly crystal clear declaration about who he is and who Jesus is in comparison. And I think it's a really beautiful place for us to begin because every single one of us are like John the Baptists who are simply called to point to Jesus. It is, it's our goal that when the spotlight is shown on us, when God begins to use our lives or give us some kind of influence or some kind of vision, our goal is to turn all of that attention and spotlight directly to Jesus. And I want to encourage you this morning that I believe that's exactly what we see in the life of John. John says two things about himself as people are beginning to like turn attention to him. He says, after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandal straps I'm unworthy to untie. Now listen to the reverence and the tribute that he pays. He says, number one, that Jesus is far more powerful than he is. 
And secondly, he says he's unworthy to untie his sandals. You know, later in the scripture, Jesus actually declares that John is the greatest man ever born of a woman. But in comparison to Jesus, John says, I don't even compare. I'm unworthy to touch the dirtiest part of Jesus. I am unworthy to be the lowliest servant and the lowliest slave of this Jesus. And this is an incredible reminder for us that Jesus is the most precious gift in life. He is the treasure of heaven. He is the prized possession of humanity. I mean, did you experience his presence this morning in worship and just feel the tenderness and the gentleness and the kindness of our God? And this is what we see in Jesus. And John, looking at him, says he is so holy and so perfect, and I am so unworthy that I can't even stoop down and take his shoes off. I don't know if there's anybody you know around you who you just think, too holy, I can't even remove his shoes. Like there's, I don't know anybody like that. But John looked at Jesus, and it was a crystal clear reminder of how precious and perfect Jesus was. And John goes on to say in verse 8, Uh, I'm sorry, Um, even the greatest man born of women, John, looks to the purity and to the power of Jesus, and his confession is, I am nothing, and I have nothing, and I'm worth nothing, but Jesus is everything. And I don't know if you guys felt the Spirit moving in this place this morning, where our reaction, our response to the holiness and the perfection of Jesus is, God, you are perfect, you are holy, and I, I am nothing. That humility begins to set into us as a people like we see in the life of John where he just says, I can't even touch his feet, but Jesus is everything. And I don't know about for you, but is Jesus becoming your everything? When you look at his face like John, are you beginning to see him more clearly that he is perfect? And despite the fact that he is wholly other and completely higher, he invites us into this beautiful relationship with him. John goes on to say in verse 8, I baptize you with water. You know, water is the substance of earth. In, in Judaism, they would take a river and they would actually uh, like build a small wall around the side and they would take people and baptize them in to remove the dirt from their conscience was the, the visual image. And last week we baptized people and it was the reminder that Jesus, by his grace, has saved us. He has cleansed not only our conscience, but he has provided for our forgiveness from sin completely. He's paid for it. But the Jews would take people and they would baptize them into this way. And a lot of times they would come. I was talking to my dad, who's quite a scholar, and uh, this week and talking to him about baptism. And he said many times the Jews would actually take um, the, the disciples to the shoreline and they would be baptized into the followership of their rabbi. And so if a new rabbi came on the scene and he began to teach a new gospel, the disciples would go and they would be baptized into the way of the rabbi. Water is this substance of earth. It's it's this reminder that God is washing away and cleaning our consciences. And throughout the scripture, water is actually the sign of judgment, right? You get like uh, floods. You get Genesis where there's chaos in the waters. And somehow God uses water as this continuing reminder of how he deals with the chaos of our lives. That we're plunged into it in death and we are raised to it in life. But John says, I baptize you with water, but Jesus is superior. How does Jesus baptize us? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Guys, this is the distinguishing mark of the life of Jesus, that he alone is worthy and is willing to baptize you and I into the Spirit of God. 
I love that the passage of Scripture tells us that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he was given the Holy Spirit and that he liberally poured out the Spirit onto us. Liberally. That he liberally pours out the Spirit, not in like drips, not in drops on your life so you get just enough to make it till tomorrow. You're just enough of a son or daughter like, you know, to get through today. No, he liberally pours the Spirit out. This is the mark of the ministry of Jesus. Verse 9, we get a perfect view of our king. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, Jesus, who John proclaims to be so holy that he's unworthy to touch even the dirtiest part of him, his feet, now Jesus, that same one who is untouchable, comes to John to be baptized. Are you kidding me? Think about this. John is telling them, I can't even put my hands on this guy's nasty feet. And somehow Jesus comes in this incredible humility of spirit, in this egoless, uh, attentionless place, and he lowers himself to go through the same process as every man, despite the fact of who he is. Are you with me? This isn't just some rote moment. This is Jesus modeling the character and the humility and the surrender he has, not only to the voice of his Father, but even to putting on this flesh and walking in the process of humanity. And if I were Jesus, I would have said, you be baptized. You know, like I would have stood on the shoreline. I would have made sure that everybody got clean, but I probably would have stayed distant. But what a picture of the, the nearness of God of the closeness, of the intimacy of God with your story and mine, that Jesus not only wraps himself in flesh, carries on perfection, but steps into the process where he is being made new in this moment, right? He steps into the surrender of this, this teaching that John the Baptist was bringing. Scholars look into this event and they assign it all kinds of meaning, but I believe at the base level, the truest thing about this is that Jesus truly made himself nothing, and he identified with my humanity, and he identified with my weakness. And he identifies with your humanity, and he identifies with your weakness. Some of you today feel so weak and fragile and broken, and Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He didn't skip a beat. He didn't, like, become 50% human, 100% human, fully human, fully God. He feels it all in still is faithful, but he empties himself of his majesty in this moment to identify with our weakness. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says it like this. In your relationships with one another, <clears throat> now take that in, he wants you to regard each other in the same way that Jesus regarded himself. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, who was exactly like God, is what the Scripture is telling us. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to hold on to, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see that this is the character and the way that Jesus lives. He doesn't come and just like, surprise, I'm more awesome than you knew. He actually lowers himself to the lowest rung of humanity and serves. Humbles himself to obedience. And God calls us to be the same. 
God calls you to respond to people around you in the same manner. And I think Jesus' faithfulness in this moment is why we see this, this beautiful moment of affirmation from God in the next verse. Because Jesus, knowing who he is, still operates in absolute humility and responsiveness to the Father's voice. You know, it's a beautiful thing when we as children of God still recognize that God calls us to be obedient regardless of your sonship or your daughtership. <clears throat> There's this really weird passage, I love it, in the scripture where Jesus starts questioning his disciples about money. You guys remember this? And he's like, hey, the world says that we're supposed to pay these taxes. What do you think? You know, are the sons exempt from the world's way? You guys remember that? Really interesting passage. And Peter says, well, I don't know. Like, I, I think the sons are exempt. And Jesus says they are. But for the sake of not bringing offense or not, uh, not walking in pride, he says we, we basically we surrender to this system still knowing who we are. He reminds us that each and every one of us, we understand what it is to step outside of the system of the world but to still be in it. And Jesus exposes what it means to be meek, what it means to be filled with the power and the authority of Jesus as sons and daughters. We're not above the world order. We're actually still in it, but our hearts are from another place. Our lives are found in another place. God is calling us to be people who are able to walk through this world filled with the power and the authority of heaven and yet submitted to the process. And that requires meekness. It requires you at times exercising patience that you may otherwise think you are exempt from because you've been saved, you know? It's interesting. People who are in jail, who get saved in jail, they're not just exempt all of a sudden from the penalties, right? They still walk through the process of what is going on there, but they're saved. And they're free even when they're in prison. And for many of us, we still live in this kind of prison of the flesh, prison of the world, but we're free. Your flesh still may fail you, but you're free. You're new in the midst of that. I don't know how I got off on that tangent. Okay. Um, I think this is why we see this moment of affirmation for Jesus, though. In verses 10 and 11, it says, just as Jesus is coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is God the Father just gushing about his son Jesus. He sees his son in absolute surrender and submission to the process. And his response is the response of a proud father who sends the spirit to descend like a dove descends. Now this is a really important passage and I love this because I think I grew up really misunderstanding this passage. Uh, so a few things that I want you to see here. Uh, number one, we see the heavens opening. You see that? We see the heavens being torn open, uh, ripped open, torn asunder, divided, depending on your translation. Uh, in the Greek, that word for opening is the word schizo, which means divided or torn. Uh, it's the same word where we get schism or schizophrenia, uh, meaning that there is something that is torn open or divided. Um, now, this is the exclamation point of Jesus' ministry because this is the realization as the heavens are being torn open, it's not just a moment where like the clouds separate and then this dove comes filtering out of the clouds. Like we have a pretty cartoonish image of what happens here, right? Uh, this is the image of the separation between heaven and earth being split for mankind. You see, for thousands of years, ever since Adam and Eve, 
The separation between God and man was definite. It was a wall, literally an angel with a fiery sword. It's, it's a wall of fire that you can't get through to get to his perfect presence. And this has endured ever since the time of Adam and Eve. And then we get to this place where God begins, and we talked about this two weeks ago, he begins to illustrate his presence in the temple, right? And priests could come in and they could serve and minister to the Lord in the temple. But there was a place where only the glory of the Lord would reside and only the most high priest could come there and only once a year. And it was this place of incredible dread and holiness and purity because mankind could not enter there by our own ways. And so God has been slowly, his plan has always been to bring you back into his presence. Always. That's been plan A all along. And he's done it through the temple. But in Jesus, we see this, this new declaration, this recapitulation of the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers where God put his presence in a place. Now he is saying, I'm putting my presence in a person. And he is perfect. He is a perfect representation of who I am am the heavens are torn open this is this is the the biggest moment for us because the separation of god and man is over for this declaration in the book of mark remember this is going to a first century group of jews they read this and their minds explode the idea that heaven has come here not only in bodily form we know as Jesus, but by the Spirit that heaven is torn open and the Spirit of God, the presence of God, the enduring residence of God is here. This is God saying, it is done. And for many of us, we live with this, this reality that we feel at an arm's length from God. This is the beautiful declaration of Jesus that it is over. That there is no separation between you and Him when you put your faith in Christ. That when you walk with him, that he longs to pour out his spirit on you in the same way that he pours his spirit out on Jesus. And as a kid, I always like envisioned this as an actual dove. How many of you envision this as an actual dove? Yeah, coming down, be honest. All right. This is fun then. The spirit descending like a dove on him. Um, this language is very different than, he's not saying in the Holy Spirit became a dove and came down on Jesus. He's saying the Spirit descended onto Jesus, actually into Jesus, like a dove descends. You get the image? So he's, he's using poetic language to talk about how the Spirit came into Jesus. Let's look at the difference, though, between that and in the Old Testament, what the Holy Spirit does. First uh, Samuel eleven six. I think we have that for you on the screen. Uh, this is just one version, Okay. It says, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words. That word came upon is one that is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. It's this um, Hebrew word, tzalak. Can you say tzalak? Yeah, you got to like stick your tongue to the roof of your mouth when you do it, tzalak. It means to go over or to go through or to rush upon. And so the actual imagery is that when the Spirit of God comes on to Saul, the Spirit comes on him in power or rushes through him or pushes through him, but doesn't stay. The Spirit comes on for a purpose, sweeps through him, creates an effect, and God's purpose is accomplished. But God can do that in a moment, and the, the, the Spirit doesn't stay. But the word here that we see in Mark chapter 1 for descended like a dove means to come down in the way of a dove or in the manner of a dove. You guys ever seen a dove kind of come down and land on a branch? 
It's flying pretty hard, and then right at the end, it starts to flap its wings and moves backward. Have you seen this? It slows itself and slowly comes to rest. That is the imagery that we're getting of how the Spirit comes into Jesus. Now, what's the difference for us? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see the same exact imagery. It starts off, and many of you guys know this, it says that the Spirit is hovering over the waters, over the, the chaos and the judgment and the despair of creation. He's hovering. Another word, though, is brooding. It's the same word that rabbis use for doves, like brooding or hovering over a tree that they're about to land on. And so the imagery here for the rabbinic culture, when they read this, or when Jews read this, they, they envisioned, they saw the Spirit of God coming to rest on Jesus differently. You see, the difference is that when the Spirit comes upon people in the Old Testament, it often says that He moves mightily through them to accomplish this purpose. But when the Spirit comes on Jesus, when the Spirit descends onto Jesus like a dove descends, He comes to rest like a dove rests on its perch. In other words, the Spirit has come home. Do you see the difference? This is not a rushing, overtaking, like the Spirit has to move and power on a man to do his will, force him to do his will, like we see in Samuel, uh, Saul, or like we see in Gideon, or like we see in Jephthah, or like we see in Barak. All through the Scriptures, the Spirit of God rushes on people to accomplish specific purposes, but here we see the Spirit of God descending and coming to rest on Jesus. Guys, the Spirit of God can rush on you and work through you, but that doesn't mean that He feels at home in you. Do you sense the difference? God can, he can move mightily through moments where He causes you to do incredible things for His name, but you can still be utterly disconnected from Him in the way that you live. He has that capacity. He moved on the kings of old, on Cyrus, on Nebuchadnezzar, to bring about his purpose. But they weren't holy men. They were unholy. They were wicked men. But God somehow can yield even people who are wicked and evil to bring about specific purposes. That is not what God desires for us. God gives us a different picture in Jesus. That's why it's important that we as a church, that we don't elevate charismatic gifts above godly character. Are you with me? Because even ungodly men can be used by God for a momentary purpose. But in Christ, we're being made into the habitation of the Spirit. Now look, don't, don't hear me wrong. We're going to go after things of the Spirit. We're going to lean into every gift that God has made available because they're for you. They're for His people. They're for us to be edified and grown and to go after the Spirit of God and to listen together. But we're not going after the gifting of the Spirit without the, the, the character of God. Because that is destructive. The scripture actually tells us that in the end times that some men will actually, they can operate in the gifts, but they still don't know him. How does that work? I, I really don't know. I don't, I don't have clarity about that. But what I know is that God always says we're to judge a tree by its fruit. Fruit never lies. I can look at the fruit on your life and I can tell whether or not you're really planted in him. You can look at the fruit of my life and you can tell whether or not I'm really rooted in Jesus or something else. And the, the loud declaration I want to give you guys today is that Jesus offers us a better way forward, not to be used by God for a moment, but to be a place where the Spirit dwells forever. Just like we see in Jesus. 
Jesus is the perfect home for the Spirit. And God's response makes that really clear. Man, you are my son, whom I love, and I am really, really pleased with you. I've heard lots of teaching on how our identity comes before we produce anything based on this passage. And I believe that that's true for us, but that's not what I see for Jesus. Uh, God's affirmation over his life is precisely because Jesus was obedient. It's precisely because Jesus was doing as he had commanded. And because of that, in Christ, you and I are approved by the Father on the basis of Jesus' perfection long before we ever do anything right. Are you with me? Jesus was obedient and the Father pronounced affirmation. And for you, at the moment you come to faith in Christ, he pronounces affirmation. You are still in process. You're still broken. You still got junk. Amen? And yet, and yet, the beautiful affirmation of God in heaven is that you are a beloved child with whom he is well pleased. And that resists our flesh in so many ways we can't even begin to describe it. Because we live in a system of earning. You live in a system where you need to earn first and then get affirmation second. And I'm not disagreeing. That's how the world works. What I'm simply saying is that faith is an altogether different covenant whereby you are approved before you do diddly squat. Are you with me? And what a beautiful way to come into the kingdom that he invites you into the fullness of who you are and your identity in him prior to you doing anything so you don't ever get it flipped. You don't ever start to think, I got to earn my way in. If we're honest, we all hit that mountain of trying to earn our way in. And God loves to kill that one like a rabid dog. Because you can't earn your way. Are you with me? It is a free gift because of Jesus' faithfulness. Verse 12. Are you guys still with me? All right. You sure? So the Spirit descends on Jesus, and He says, this is the declaration, that time is over. Heaven is no longer there and earth here. They are being joined. Are you with me? That's why the consummation of all things is where the new heaven and the new earth descend together. Are you with me? This is the picture of the scripture, God's habitation coming into the habitation of man. Big deal. Okay. Uh, verse 12. At once the Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness. Skirt. Listen, now if you've been reading the scripture, this is not what you think is about to happen, right? Like Jesus is applauded by God in heaven. The heavens are ripped open. The Holy Spirit, I've never said skirt, by the way. That was my first time. I don't if you'll give me some reviews on how I did, I felt okay. Thank you. I was channeling Gabriel Pagan just then, you know. It's not what you see happening. This is not what you think is going to happen next in the story. You are my son whom I love. You know, Mufasa's voice is in my head. Uh, it's none of that. I'm really pleased with you. Now, I'm going to send you out to starve for 40 days. And I'm going to want you to go ahead and do that by yourself. And I'm going to let the Satan, Satan's not his name, by the way. It's a title again. The Satan, the accuser. I'm going to let the accuser come and just test you to death. Does that make sense to anybody? This is not what I'm expecting. If I'm reading a story, this is like the hard turn to the right. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. The Spirit sent him out. Not the enemy, 
Not the world, not your friend who's crooked and betrayed you, the Spirit. Sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted or tested by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. You know, it's relieving for me, as, as weird of a, of a right turn as this is, to see that Jesus, when he receives the Spirit and is pronounced a son or daughter, that he's not instantly freed from hardship and testing. Isn't that nice? Because you and I, if we're honest, like on a Tuesday when we're being really tempted and tested or facing difficulties, we're thinking, I thought I was a son or daughter. Isn't this supposed to stop? Wasn't that, that desire to partner with lust supposed to stop? Wasn't that desire to partner with greed? Wasn't that supposed to stop? Oh, but somehow, even here, Jesus, filled with the Spirit, isn't instantly freed from all of that. But rather, the Spirit sends him into the wilderness in order to be tested. Many times we enter into the kingdom and God calls us sons and daughters and we want him to peel off all the humanity right then. But Jesus lived in the humanity. He stepped into the wilderness to show that he could dominate even testing and temptation so that your faith could be made perfect. So that your faith in Christ was not with a man who could be filled with the Spirit, but weak-willed enough to fall to power and greed and temptation and approval of man, but who was triumphant over all those things. This is a recapitulation. That's the second time I've used this word. I should explain it. This is a retelling of all the Old Testament stories. Israel goes into the wilderness for how many years? Forty. Jesus goes into the wilderness for how many days? Not a coincidence. What Mark is telling us is that Jesus has done successfully what Israel failed at miserably. That Jesus is the answer where Israel was just trying to be the solution. The point has never been Israel. Israel was the birthing canal for the Jesus who is the answer. And Jesus is telling us here that as he's led out into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the Satan, that he is ultimately victorious. And God allows Jesus to be tested. And listen to me, God allows you to be tested. Your life is not apart from testing because of the Spirit of God in you. You're not isolated or secluded from that. And here's another one. Not everything bad that happens to you is spiritual attack. A lot of it is you. A lot of it. In fact, the scripture says that the Satan is disarmed and defeated, which means most of it is you. Golly. Dang. We should just pray and go home, right? No. You know, James says that we're actually pulled away into sin when by our own evil desires we're tempted. And so there's a lot under the surface. I, I love charismatic culture, but can, can, I, can I warn you? If we point at the devil and every demon, you know, as being the reason why we are where we are, we're missing out on this revelation that God wants to give us, that he has freed us. He has disarmed and defeated the enemy, and he's bringing you into freedom. But it means you fighting the flesh with the, the power of the Spirit. It means you choosing to partner with the Spirit. I was talking with a guy this week who was just saying that he's having uh, ongoing, we're family, right? Okay, I can talk about this. He's having ongoing struggles with temptations toward lustful things. And he's just like, how do I, what do I do? He said, because, and he's using victim language as we're talking. I just feel like I'm, like this thing keeps getting me and it's going to come again tomorrow. And I said, God has, he's already defeated the enemy. Not future tense. Not future tense. 
Are you with me? Like, we will get to see it, future tense. It is now. The enemy has been disarmed and defeated, and you have authority. But it's like setting up camp in an open jail cell that we never want to move out of because we're so comfortable there. What God is inviting us into is a freedom that causes you to step out of the places where you've lived in bondage and to not identify more closely with them than you do with freedom. Are you with me? He's he's teaching us what it means to be free. Not just freed, but kind of like friends with the sin. Not just free, but like an acquaintance of this thing, or this thing can beat up on me whenever it wants. No, the thing that was beating up on you, maybe it's in you, and God wants to free you from it. This is your desire. God is trying to teach you a different way. And he's doing it by his spirit, through process, right? And sometimes in a moment. I love seeing people be freed in a moment from things. That is available too. I have no idea where I'm at. Sorry. God allows us to be tested. And some of you are here this morning, and for you, that's kind of good news because you feel isolated in the testing. You feel isolated in the temptation. And I want to declare to you this morning, this is not about you trying to fight for your freedom apart from Jesus. This is about putting on the victory of Jesus. This is about you stepping into his victorious power for you today. And it is available, and it is mysterious, and it is yours by faith in Christ. That's what this gospel is all about. It says that the Spirit led him into the wilderness. You guys know this from two weeks ago, but that word means solitary, lonely, desolate, uninhabited, and even uncultivated places. You know, it's in the solitary, lonely place that Jesus is outfitted and equipped for what he's meant to do. And for many of us, we step into those places and we think, oh God, this is your judgment against us. This is God's plan to get you prepared to do everything you've been called to do. For many of us, we flee those places. Our culture is fantastic. Give us a quick fix and an easy answer so that I can get out of the hard space. And yet the scripture tells us that is where Jesus moved from being full of the Spirit to being full of the power of the Spirit. And for some of you, man, you know Jesus, you have been saved, you've been set apart, you're full of the Spirit, and yet he wants to give you power. Power that doesn't fold under temptation and testing and stress. Power that causes you to walk and to be a non-anxious presence in the world. That when conflict, when difficulty and duress comes, everybody's freaking out around you and they look at your life and you are standing firm because you are planted on the rock. This is the image of what it looks like for you and I to be people who have not run from wilderness seasons, but embraced them like a friend because we know that it's there. The Spirit has led us there to meet with the victory of Jesus. He's led us there to understand our own frailty and His strength. He's led us there so that we can not only be full of the Spirit, but full of the power of the Spirit. And your families and your workplaces and our city longs to see people who are deeply rooted and firmly founded in the goodness and the grace and the love of God. You are not easily shaken. I had this dream two weeks ago. The Lord gives me dreams all the time. And um, I'll see whether or not this is a good idea after I tell it. But um, in the dream, the Lord showed me a vision of my family at the beach. All of us were in this like high-rise apartment at the beach. And um, a, a phone call came in, and very quickly somebody said, hey, the storms are coming. You guys need to run. And I just said, okay. I immediately started looking up storms. I'm talking to my family. I said, hey, run for cover. Every one of you, go to cover. 
And so everybody starts running for cover, and Chrissy and I, instead of running for cover, we hop in this vehicle, and we're like driving through the storm. Uh, and we, we get to this point where this bridge collapses, and we're racing through this river, and our car becomes a boat. It was an incredible dream, okay? Um, but we had another person from the church in the boat with us. They just suddenly appeared, and I said, what are you doing here, <laughs> you know, and trying to figure it all out. And, uh, and people started jumping out of the boat car thing, and I'm in there by myself. And I get to the end of this dream, and I, I realize the Lord, past week, has been telling me that this wasn't about my physical family. I thought it was just for my physical family at first. I believe he's telling us as a community, he wants you to know that storms are coming. You hear me? We're not entering a season of peace. The storms are coming. And immaturity will say, um, all the spiritual attack is just the power from out there. And what I want to clue you into is that the Holy Spirit wants to teach you how to fight your own flesh and to put that to death so that when spiritual attack comes, we don't become victims, but we understand what it means to move through the season in power. It's also a clear indication to me that we have to learn how to be deeply rooted in his goodness and his grace and his love. And we have to learn how to intercede and be people of prayer. I'm telling you this because of exactly what we're talking about here. This may feel like a wilderness season for many of you. My house is breaking up. My car is blowing up. My marriage is under duress. I keep getting sick. My kids are sick. Finances are piling up. Here's what I want to tell you. Don't be shocked if that becomes part of the story. Are you with me? If that happens and it's just one of us, that seems like a, a personal crisis, right? If that happens and it's like 15 or 20 of us, it's no longer a personal crisis. We understand that the enemy has an agenda also. Are you with me? Immaturity will cause you to freak out. Maturity will cause you to dig your heels in. Immaturity will cause you to run and find another church. <laughs> Problematically, storms like to hit all kinds of churches, you know? Maturity will cause you to find your role and responsibility in seeing that the family stays safe. Are you with me? Storms are coming. And so as a body, as we look at the scripture, Jesus goes to the wilderness and it is not an affront and it is not a shock to his system. He recognizes why he is there. He is there to shut the enemy up. And he does. The enemy sees that he cannot tempt him. Now, we don't, he didn't, Mark doesn't go into depth about this wilderness season. He doesn't talk a lot about it. And so I don't want to try to explain more into it than Mark says. We'll do that in another gospel. But I want to make sure you guys hear me say that the wilderness is not a bad place. And times of difficulty will and are coming. And when they do, God is calling us to be ready. Outfitted as people of his spirit. Outfitted in the wilderness to do what he's called us to, to do outside of the wilderness. Do not run from it. Like the Lord told me two years ago, embrace the wilderness like a friend. It is a kiss. It is a gift. And if you run from it, I promise you, you'll repeat it. You just keep going through it until you can put on the victory of Jesus. I'm going to stop there.